Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Ezra. To that end, I invite you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 1 as we read the verses 5 through 11. Let us hear the word of God. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar the prince of Judah. This is the number of them, thirty gold platters, one thousand silver platters, twenty-nine knives, thirty gold basins, four hundred and ten silver basins of a similar kind, and one thousand other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were five thousand four hundred. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, have you ever gone on a long trip? Sometimes the best part of a journey are the days just before you leave. You're so excited, you can hardly wait. You count down the days and then the hours, and finally the minutes. You just can't wait to get started. Well, the Jewish exiles in Babylon must have experienced something similar. Last week, we learned that after many years of living in Babylon, the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to issue a decree allowing the Jews to return to the promised land and to rebuild the temple. He also ordered their neighbors to give those who wanted to return silver and gold and goods and livestock and to take up a collection for the reconstruction of the temple. Now, the Jews never expected this. Many thought that they would be in Babylon forever. But the Lord had mercy on them, and he made it possible for them to return. And many, in fact, did. As we read in the next chapter, some 42,360 Jews returned, as well as some 7,337 servants and 200 singers. So that's 49,897 people in total. Well, how excited they all must have been. Imagine loading your goods on the back of a donkey or a camel, making sure everything is secure, placing your children in a cart and heading out to the rendezvous point. And then at long last, as soon as the last of the pilgrims had arrived, they heard the signal to depart. This is the moment they had been waiting for, the long trek back to the promised land 
had begun. And we have a record of that event in the words of our text today, Ezra 1, the verses 6 through 11. And it's to these verses that we turn our attention. Our theme is, the exiles depart from Babylon. And we'll see that they did so, first of all, by the power of the Lord, secondly, with the provision of the Lord, and thirdly, under the blessing of the Lord. The Jews in Babylon could not believe their ears. Cyrus, king of Persia, had issued a decree allowing them to go home, to go back to the promised land, the land of their forefathers, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is more, he encouraged them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the same temple that the Babylonians had destroyed many years earlier. And they responded to this call in droves. We read of this in verse 5 of our text. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, if you look at this verse carefully, you'll notice that there are three groups of people that are mentioned here. The first is the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin. Now, these were the civic leaders of the people. And it's fitting that in light of their rank and position, they should be mentioned first. And it's also noteworthy that they were the first to respond to Cyrus's call to return. And so doing, they set before the people a good example. Now, you'll notice by way of passing that only Judah and Benjamin are mentioned here. And that's because the ten northern tribes had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians many years earlier. And by this time, most of them were completely assimilated. Only the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained. And so these are the only two tribes that are mentioned here in our text. The second group of people mentioned here are the priests and the Levites. Now these were the religious leaders of the people. It's also fitting that they too responded to Cyrus's call. After all, one of the reasons why Cyrus issued this decree was so that people might rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But what was the point of rebuilding the temple if there were no priests to serve in it? Besides, the people needed spiritual instruction, if only to avoid the sins that led to the captivity in the first place. And these priests understood that, and so many of them also went up. The third group of people mentioned here are the members of the general population, close to 50,000 people in total. Now, how do we explain this? We find the answer to that in verse 5. We read there that God moved their spirits. Now, this is the same phrase that was used of Cyrus in verse 1 of this chapter. There we read, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. So just as the Lord had stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to issue a decree allowing his people to return to the promised land, so he stirred up the spirit of his people to respond to that decree. Now what does this mean exactly? Well, it means 
He prompted them to do something that they would not have done otherwise. Left to themselves, most likely, hardly any of these Jews would have returned to the promised land. And who could blame them? After all, Babylon was their home. Most of them were born there. They had homes there and businesses and family and connections and friends. Babylon was all they knew. What is more, the promised land, which they had never seen before, was many hundreds of miles away, requiring many days of travel through some very inhospitable terrain. And most of it lay in ruins. Who in their right mind would leave the comforts and the luxuries of Babylon to go to a land that they had never seen before, only to have to make it, only have to have to work for years to make it habitable? No one in his right mind would do that. The only way any of the Jews would have returned to the promised land was by the prompting of God. And God knew this. And so in his sovereign grace and mercy, he stirred up the hearts of at least some of them to return. We're reminded here, aren't we, of the parable of the prodigal son. Like the younger son, the Jews had squandered their inheritance. They turned from worshiping God to the worship of idols. And as punishment for their sin, God sold them into captivity in Babylon. And there they remained, as we said, for some 70 years. But then God, in his grace, remembered his covenant. He took notice of his people languishing there in Babylon, far away from their home. And he stirred up their spirit to cause them to return to the promised land. Now, the younger son experienced something similar, didn't he? We read that while he was in the pigsty feeding the pigs, that he suddenly came to himself. And he thought about how his father's, how his father's hired servants had plenty of food and plenty to drink while he was starving. And so what did he do? He resolved to go back to his father and to ask him to make him as one of his hired servants. Well, God still works the same way today. Like the decree of Cyrus, he causes his word to be widely proclaimed by the mouth of his servants. However, as we well know, not all who hear the call of the gospel respond to that call. And why is that? Well, it's not because there's some deficiency in the gospel. There is no deficiency in the gospel. Nor is it because, as some maintain, that some exercise their free will and others do not. That's impossible because man has no free will. His will is in bondage to sin. What is more, he is full of enmity against God. And that means that man in his natural condition will never respond to God in and of himself. The reason why some respond to the call of the gospel and others do not is because of God's sovereign grace. God stirs up the spirit of those who respond, whereas he does not stir up the spirits of those who do not respond. Now, why God chooses to stir up the hearts of some and not others, we do not know. He is absolutely sovereign in this. But one thing we do know, that apart from a prior work of God's grace in the heart, no man will ever respond to the call of the gospel. 
We are utterly and completely dependent on God's grace from beginning to end. Not just for coming to Christ, but also for living out of Christ. Philippians 2 verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Well, my friends, do you realize that today? How have you responded to the call of the gospel? Well, today again, this call comes to us in this portion of the word of God. Leave Babylon and go to Jerusalem. Which will you choose? Well, do not say like some people do, first God has to stir up my heart. And that's true, of course, but that's no excuse. For while God is 100% sovereign, man is still 100% responsible. And therefore, you must respond to this call. And if you are truly convinced of your inability to respond to it, then you will bring that also to the Lord and ask him to give you the grace that you need to do it. But one thing you may not do, and that is to ignore this call or to sit there and do nothing. You cannot hide behind the sovereignty of God. And so the Jews left Babylon by the power of the Lord. But they also left with the provision of the Lord. And that brings us to our second point. The Jews who returned to Jerusalem did not leave Babylon empty-handed. God ensured that they had plenty of provisions. As we observed earlier, and as we learned last week, when Cyrus issued his proclamation, he encouraged those who chose not to go back to help those who did with silver and with gold and with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And they did. And we read in verse 6, And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, besides all that was willingly offered. Well, who were these people that gave this? Well, most were probably their fellow Jews who chose, for whatever reason, not to go back with them to Jerusalem. But they probably included non-Jews as well. It's likely that many people knew that Cyrus had encouraged the citizens of his empire to give for the cause of rebuilding the temple, and so many of them did, if only to win his favor and to demonstrate their loyalty and what good citizens they were. And if that is the case, and it seems likely, then what we have here is a reenactment of the Exodus. In Exodus 12, verse 35 and 36, we read that when the people of Israel prepared to leave Egypt, that they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And we read that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they granted them what they requested. Thus, it says, they plundered the Egyptians. Now we see that same thing happening here, don't we? The Jews did not go back to Jerusalem empty-handed. Rather, they brought with them great wealth from the Babylonians themselves. We're reminded here that all material things belong to God. In Psalm 50, verse 10, God says, Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. And since that is true, we have nothing to worry about when it comes to material things. Whatever we need, God in his word says he will provide. But the people were not the only ones who contributed to the rebuilding of the temple. So did Cyrus. 
We read in verse 7, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. Now, you may remember that when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had conquered Jerusalem sometime earlier, he removed from the temple all of the furnishings and all the utensils from the temple and carried them away to Babylon, where they were placed in the temple of his god. And they served as a kind of a war trophy and a reminder that the gods of the Babylonians were greater than the god of the Jews. However, according to Daniel Daniel chapter 5, one night while Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was partying with his princes, he ordered these same vessels to be brought in so that they would fill them up with wine and give a toast to their gods. And these were the same vessels that Cyrus ordered to be given back to the Jews. For we read in verse 8 and following, And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, Mithridath was probably a Persian official named after Mithras, the sun god. Some say that Sheshbazar was Zerubbabel, the grandson of King Jeconiah, and consequently a descendant of King David who together with Joshua the high priest was later instrumental in reconstructing the temple. But that's not very likely. Most likely he was the official leader of the returning exiles, possibly even a Persian official, while Zerubbabel was the popular leader of the people. Or he may have been a senior Jewish figure who died shortly after the return, leaving Zerubbabel his second in command in charge of the returnees. The fact that he's called the prince of Judah doesn't settle anything because the Hebrew word that's used there can also be translated as ruler. It doesn't necessarily imply royal descent. Whatever the case, it was into his hand and the hand of Mithridath that Cyrus entrusted the vessels of the temple. We have an exact catalog of these vessels in verses 9 through 11. We read there, this is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now there's something extraordinary about this list. One might have expected these vessels to have been melted down at some point and repurposed, but that didn't happen. For God had preserved them intact for all these years. Now, to be sure, there were other items that were in the temple that were not returned, presumably because they were lost, such as the golden candlestick and, most notably, the Ark of the Covenant. But all of the vessels were So what lesson is the Holy Spirit teaching us here? Well, we can think of at least two. First of all, we learn here that God remembers his promises. The last time we saw how God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And he does the same thing here. God promised that the vessels of the temple would all be returned. He did so in Isaiah 52 verse 11. 
There Isaiah writes, Depart, depart, go out from here, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Now these words were addressed to the returning exiles. The reference to the vessels of the Lord implies that the vessels would be preserved and returned, and that one day the Jews would go home. Well, here we have the fulfillment of that very promise. God is faithful to his promises, and he still remembers his promises today. He has made many promises to his people, promises for this life and promises for the life to come. And the gold and silver vessels remind us and assure us that he will keep every one of these promises. Secondly, we learn here that God cares for his people. I mean, think of it. Not one spoon or goblet went missing from the temple collection. Does that not assure us that not one of God's people will go missing? If not a single vessel went missing, will God allow any of his people to go missing? Absolutely not. He will bring every one of them to glory. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, verses 19 through 21? There he compares, interestingly, he compares Christians to vessels. And he says, some are of gold and silver, some are of wood and clay, some are for honor, others are for dishonor. But Paul says, this much is certain, the Lord knows those who are his. And how the returning exiles needed to be assured of this very truth. As they prepare to make their long and arduous journey back to the promised land. One commentator I read writes this. He says, If God is concerned about exact numbers of basins of gold and silver, then how much more is he concerned about the lives of men and women and children? This is what faithful Jews might say to each other as they made the long journey to Jerusalem. If he cares for the sparrow, then how much more does he care for me? The point is, God ensured that his people would not go back empty-handed. He provided them all that they needed for the journey and beyond. And he still does the same today. Like these exiles, we too are on a journey. We too are traveling to a distant land, if we are believers in Christ. Not the land of Canaan, but a spiritual land to which the land of Canaan pointed and in which it found its ultimate fulfillment. We are traveling to a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And the journey is long and it is difficult. But here's the comfort. The Lord provides us with all that we need. He gives us his word. He gives us the preaching of his word. He gives us the sacraments for the strengthening of our faith. And what is more, he gives us his Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who equips us and guides us and leads us and teaches us and sanctifies us and enables us to keep on going forward despite the incredible obstacles that lie in the way. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. God will take care of us and he will bring us safely to our destination. And that brings us to our third and final point. After many weeks of preparation, at long last the exiles began their long journey back to the promised land. Now significantly, we do not read anything in our text chapter 
or in the next chapter about what they experienced along the way. We don't read anything about the difficulties that they encountered or the discouragements discouragements that they experienced. And that doesn't mean that there were none. There most certainly were. I'm sure there were. But nothing is recorded. All we are told is that they arrived safely at their destination. We read of that in verse 11. After describing all the utensils that were returned and their number, we read these words, All these Sheshbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. That one simple phrase, from Babylon to Jerusalem, says it all, doesn't it? You see, these words mark a new era in the history of God's covenant people. Like the prodigal son, they signal that God's covenant people have made a break with their past. They have turned their back on Babylon and they have chosen to dwell in Jerusalem. And I wonder if you've done the same. One commentator writes this. He says, all of human history is one of conflict between Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem, the city of God. The closing pages of Scripture record Babylon's downfall. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, as we read in Revelation 18, verse 2. And within these words lies the great divide between the way that leads to death and the way that leads to life. As the pilgrims set their faces toward Jerusalem, they are indicating that a clear choice has been made. They have chosen the way of life, the city of God. And the question that rings in our ears as we read this chapter is clear. Have we done the same? Have we chosen that city? Are we marching toward Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem? Like Cyrus, God has issued a decree. He calls us also today to depart from Babylon and to go to Jerusalem. See, those are our only two options. If we remain in Babylon, we'll surely die. But if we go to Jerusalem, we will live to all eternity. And the question is, which choice will you make? You know, the Lord Jesus made a similar choice during his temptation in the wilderness. The devil promised to give him all the kingdoms of the earth if he would only fall down and worship him. But as we know, Jesus refused. And he said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You see, the Lord Jesus chose to follow the path of God rather than the path of Satan. He made this choice because that was the only way that he could save his people from their sins. And later, as his earthly ministry came to a close, we read that he steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem, the place where he would suffer and die for the sins of his people. And not once did he hesitate. Not once did he have second thoughts. Oh yes, he struggled. He struggled very much in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he pleaded with his father that if it was possible to please let this cup of suffering pass from him. But he never turned aside from the path that was laid out for him. He drank the cup of suffering to the last bitter dregs. And in doing so, he redeemed his people from all their sins. Beloved, he calls us to do the same. He calls us to follow that same path, the road to Jerusalem. It's not an easy road. It involves pain and suffering and humiliation. But beloved, The reward is worth it. Everlasting life with God in Christ. Oh, will you follow him on this path? Will you depart from Babylon and journey to Jerusalem? Here, as God calls you today, come out 
from among them, and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to this message you just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.